Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Today, we celebrate the centennial of writer, actor, and director Anthony Ellis. In honor of his 100th birthday, I've chosen an episode of Escape written and directed by Mr. Ellis, the abominable snowman. Escape was an anthology series that ran on CBS with stories focused on life-or-death situations, many of them adapted from classic literature. The Abominable Snowman, however, was one of many original radio plays written and directed for Escape by the multi-talented Anthony Ellis. Born in England, Ellis moved to the United States to become an actor. His earliest roles were on radio in such shows as the Lux Radio Theater, Arch Ober's Plays, and The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. Somewhere along the way, Ellis turned his attention to writing. In 1949, Ellis began contributing scripts to a detective series called Pursuit, featuring the fictitious adventures of Inspector Peter Black of Scotland Yard. Although Ellis continued to pursue acting, he quickly gained a reputation as a writer. Ellis wrote many notable scripts for Escape, including two of our favorites, I Saw Myself Running and A Study in Wax. Escape producer Norm MacDonald soon tapped Ellis to direct as well. In 1953, Ellis adapted Othello for a two-part suspense broadcast featuring Elliot Lewis, Richard Widmark, and Kathy Lewis. Ellis took over as director and producer for suspense in 1954 and continued in that role until 1956 when William N. Robeson took the reins. Today's story stars frequent escape actor William Conrad, who we plan to highlight with a special centennial episode later this year. But now, let's listen to The Abominable Snowman from Escape, originally broadcast September 13th, 1953. It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker, listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. frozen slopes of a great mountain, terrified and caught in a blizzard, while the thing for which you've been hunting has suddenly become the hunter. And if it finds you, then for you and your companions, there can be no escape. So listen now as Escape brings you Anthony Ellis's exciting story, The Abominable Snowman.
Our first bit of luck was when we hired our Sherpa guide, Nasang. That was in Darjeeling. When I told Nasang what we were after, he hesitated for a moment. And then he said, The Saibs have not come to climb Shomolongma? Oh, no. We're a little late for that. It's already been done. The other two Saibs and myself are here for the reason I told you. Meto Kangmi? That's right. The Saibs always hire me to climb the mountain with them. But never this. Are you afraid of them? I have seen one. You've seen one? Yes, many of us have seen them. Uh, wait a minute. Alan. Yeah? What's up? I'm interviewing a Sherpa in here. He says he's seen one of the things. Hey. Where's Frank? Uh, went out to get some tobacco. Yeah. All right, come on in. I think this is our man. All right. Nasang, this is Mr. Ferris. Sir? Hello, Nasang. Nasang was telling me about what he'd seen. Go ahead, Nasang. It has a face that is evil. And when it saw me, it uttered a strange cry and bounded away. Sometimes leaping, sometimes running with great strides. It was dusk, and after a moment I lost sight of it in the snow. Where were you? With the French expedition. It was at 19,000 feet on Shomolungma. How far were you from it? 30 feet, uh, perhaps 35. You're sure it wasn't an ape? I am sure. There is no ape in the Himalaya to make such a track. What about bears? This too I have been asked. But does a bear walk always upon its hind legs? Well, that's enough for me. Alan? Yeah, he'll do. Yeah. But if you want the job, Nasang, you're hired. You are going to try to... Capture a yeti? Yes. It will be a difficult thing, but I will serve with you. Yeti, wild man, Netokangmi, abominable snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things, and... Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. We'd all done some climbing, but climbing was secondary here. Expeditions since the beginning of the 20th century had heard of the abominable snowman, observed their tracks, and one or two white men claimed to have seen them. Great ape, bear, monkey, wild men. We didn't know, but we were going to find out. Four weeks later, we were in the Rongbuk Valley for our interview at the monastery with the Lama. The journey from our base had been uneventful. The weather was good and our spirits were high. From the Lama's window, we could see the great peak of Everest in the distance. Why, gentlemen, do you desire to capture Metokangmi? Because, sir, we believe it will be an invaluable aid in our prehistoric research. That is, if these things are in any way human. And for this reason, then, you have formed the expedition? Yes. You are all familiar with climbing? Yes, we are. You would need to be. The Yeti move at high places, dangerous places, so my people tell me. Also, the monsoons are arriving in a short time. I understand that. Then do we have your permission to investigate in the valley and beyond? You have my permission. Oh, thank I you. appreciate it. There is one point, however. 
I must request that no wild animal or being in this valley be shot. Our religion does not allow it. We'll respect your wishes, sir. Now, may I ask you one more thing? Of course, my son. Do you believe in the existence of Metokangmi? I myself have never seen them, but I know that they live here, above the valley, on the goddess mother of the world. It is also true that at least five, and possibly more, inhabit the upper Rongbuk and its glaciers. Thank you. Do you have portals? Our guide, Nasang, is hiring them now. Yeah. I trust that he meets with good fortune. The old man, with great dignity, bowed slightly to us and we were dismissed. But I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. And it wasn't long before I found out why. Nasang returned to us in our quarters and his face warned of bad news. Sir, I am unable to hire any porters. Why not? They know the purpose of the expedition. They will not go. Why? They are afraid. Of the snowmen? Yes. They live in peace with them. They wish no trouble. They are afraid. Well, all right. It'll be rough, but we can't waste time talking them into it. The monsoons will be coming in a couple of weeks. It's not the same as climbing, Everest. We'll travel light, just the four of us. Set up a base and start hunting. All right with you fellows? Yeah, yeah sure. Nasang? I will go with you. I am not afraid. Good. Well, let's take a look at the map. Now, we'll each carry a capacity load. We should be able to make this point below the glacier in two days. That's 16,000 feet. Mm. And if our abominable snowmen are in the vicinity, we've got two weeks to find them. Uh, when do we start? Tomorrow. Good. Well, that's it. Um, Paul? Yes, Frank? Uh, one thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the things? Uh, superstition, probably. Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid. The weather turned ugly the day we left the village. A cold Tibetan wind blew down from the west, and with our heavy packs, it took us much longer than we'd thought to arrive at the point just below the Rongbuk Glacier. We set up our camp and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. The next morning wasn't so bad. There was a heavy overcast, a promise of snow, and the peak of Everest looming over us was shrouded in clouds. The four of us sat in the tent looking at our charts and drinking hot tea. I figured it'd be easiest if we started at the East Glacier. It's only about three miles from here, and with the weather as stinking as it is, we won't run too much of a risk. What do you think, Paul? Well, that sounds all right. What do you say we split up? Uh, you and Nasung, Alan and me. We'll work up on either side of the ridge, here. And if we spot any tracks, fire two shots. Hmm? Yeah, good enough. Now, the big thing, though, no matter what... Don't shoot at the thing if you do see it. Okay? Okay. All right. If we lose touch with each other, we'll meet back here at five. All right, let's get going.
We'd left the base at six that morning, and the going was rough. Alan was pretty well shot by the time we got to the 17,000-foot mark. He was having a tough time breathing, and the wind had come up again. And with it, a fine, powdery snow that blinded and choked us. Hey, I, I, I gotta take five. All right. Here, move over here. Might cut some of the wind. Oh. Oh. Oh, that's better. Oh, we might as well start back for the base. We couldn't see anything in this anyhow. You know, right now, I don't care whether we do or not. Uh, this is good weather. Wait until the monsoons start. No, no, not me. Oh, I'm cold. I've never been so cold in all my life. We stayed in the half-shelter of an overhang for ten minutes, and the wind was quieter and the snow had let up. I noticed that the tracks we'd made coming into the shelter were gone now, but we didn't have any worry finding our way back. I figured that Frank and Nassang had met pretty much the same thing on their side of the ridge, and we'd meet them at the base. So Alan and I picked ourselves up and started off. Boy, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape, but up here... Boy, I'm nothing. Oh, Paul, I'm tired again. We'll just take it easy going down. You haven't got frostbite, have you? No. No, not yet, but... What? The left there. Yeah. They're not our tracks, are they? Not unless you took your boots off on the way up. Must have... Just passed by. It must have seen us. Yeah. Come on. We were looking at a set of tracks newly made in the fresh snow. And they'd passed so close to our shelter that the thing must have known we were there. They weren't the tracks of a bear or an ape, but more like a splay-footed naked foot. The tracks of the abominable snowman. We will return to escape in just a moment, but first, 30 million school children make their way back to class this year. There are just 10 million too many for existing school facilities. Contact Better Schools to West 45th Street, New York 19, for information on ending this menace to America's educational standards. And now, back to escape. began to follow the tracks, and for a while, perhaps 150 yards, it was easy. And then the thing made a leftward traverse down a deep slope. We could see the prince clearly, angling with a sidestep, as sure-footed as a mountain goat, except that it was walking on two legs. This way, Paul. Take it easy, Alan. Get, 
Getting steeper. Boy, that thing sure can climb. Hold up. Alla. I think the... Hold and he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body. And I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone. Finished. All I could think of was the noise he'd made when he went over. Surprised, angry, then silence. The crevasse might have been 500 feet or 5,000. Snow started to fall again. Big flakes this time and wet. I stood up. And across the gap 20 feet away, I saw the tracks of the thing continuing on and away until they became lost in the blank whiteness of the glacier. It had jumped and landed still upright on the opposite side. I went back to the base. And an hour later, Frank and Nassang returned. I told them... And we were quiet for a long time. Then... Paul, are we going out again tomorrow? Why not? I just wanted to. We should go back. It is an omen. I tell you, he was going too fast. He didn't have a chance to see the crevasse. That's not an omen. It's bad sense. Metokong, we cannot be caught. We'll catch him. Uh, but there are only three of us. If we had a few more men... I tell you, the thing was so close that we'd, if we'd looked up at the right time, we'd have seen it. You think I'm going to give up now? Next time we'll get it. There was no chance to get Alan out. Huh? No. You think if we went back... Listen, you think I don't want to? He's gone. I tried, but he's gone. Okay. Oh, okay. Wish that wind had let up. Maybe by morning. We'll try again tomorrow. It was cold that night, and somehow colder because Alan was gone. I heard Frank tossing around, and I knew he was thinking about a body broken and lonely, lost somewhere in a deep and dark place. In the morning, the three of us packed our gear, camera, food. It was a light pack, and we started up again. This time to a crest above the ridge. It was tougher than it looked, and we weren't even halfway up before we had to rest. But as I looked to the west, I saw clouds boiling up. Not white, but somber, threatening. And below, the valley looked grim, ugly gray. And then the sun was gone. And we kept on going up. And then I had a strange feeling. It was nothing I could see, nothing I could hear, only a sensation of being watched, followed. Wait a minute. See something? No. I, I have felt it too, Saib. Something following us? Yes. It is Metukongmi. How do you know? It can be nothing else. At this height, there is nothing else that lives. Maybe it's curious. No, don't turn around, Frank. Listen. When we get up to the crest, you two flop down. Stay in sight of the slope here. What are you going to do? Move around the hump and watch. If it thinks we're all together, it may come close enough to give us a chance to get it. You better watch your step. It looks nasty. I will. Now, come on. 
It took us another 15 minutes to get up to the crest, and then Frank and Nassang hunched down to rest. They were in clear view of the slope we just ascended. I moved back out of sight and made my way toward the hump, which backed a long shelf on the north side of the crest. In a couple of minutes, I lost sight of them and of the slope. The wind had increased and the clouds had spread now to become an iron-gray canopy over the mountain. It was getting colder again. I don't think it took over five minutes to reach my lookout point. And when I did, I had a perfect view of the ground we'd covered. There was nothing there. The men were out of sight. And I waited. A minute. Two. There was nothing. Until... came, carried on the wind, a cry, and then shots. I scrambled back to where I'd left them. And when I got there, when I got there, Frank was lying on his back, and I couldn't look at what was left of his face. There were terrible deep rents in his clothing, and he was dead. The song lay huddled a few feet beyond, a gun in his hand. Son. What is it? What? Metokangmi. came from behind us. Before I could draw the gun, it has killed. Then it sprang at me. It is strong, Saib, with the strength of ten men. All right. All right, can you sit up? My leg... It struck at me, my leg broken. I shot at it, but I missed. It jumped away and was gone. Okay. We'll have to figure out a way to get you down. We were four hours from camp, and with Nassang practically helpless, it could well be four days or never. I buried Frank where he was lying, then began to work down the slope. Nassang was in great pain. He half slid and crawled as best he could. That part of it wasn't too bad. Then we were at the bottom and there was a ledge to climb. It took well over two hours to do that. And we still had three miles of difficult terrain to cover. The stops became more frequent. Sir, leave me here. Go back. No. My leg is frozen. There is no feeling anymore. I shall not live much longer, Don't be a fool. After a rest, you'll be able to go on. Soon the night comes. If we are both caught here, we both die. There will be snow, much snow. Leave me, sir. No, we're going back together. Please, let me sleep. Let me sleep here. I cannot go on. You've got to, Nassan. No, no more. The ridge is only about a half mile. From there, it won't be too bad. No, no, let me stay. Nassan. Let me sleep. No. No, come on, Nassan. Come on, you're not going to sleep. Nassan. You'll be all right. Behind you, Sam. I turned, and for an instant I saw it outlined against the snow, crouching of medium height. It was covered with thick hair. The face was reddish and bare. A semi-human face. And it was not an ape. Thing made a tremendous leap and was gone, but I'd hit it. I knew I hit it. It took me. That was he. Did you kill it? No, I don't think so. Then it will be back. 
It has tasted blood. You must leave me. No, get up. Get up. Come on. Let's go. The song. I am very sorry, sir. Will you ask the Lama to make a prayer for me? Sure. Sure I will, Masang, but... Give my pay to my wife in their healing. I'm sorry, Saab. I die. Masang. Masang. the darkness came, and with its shadows and the snow, every hillock mound became the thing, motionless, waiting. In my mind, I kept seeing it, its long arms, powerful, and the dreadful claws it must have possessed. I carried my gun in my gloved hand, but I knew that I couldn't fire it unless I was barehanded, and that meant my hand would freeze to the gun. And then suddenly, I felt myself slipping. It was a short incline, but when I reached the bottom, the gun was gone. I'd lost it. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. And I saw a glint of metal in the snow ten feet away. And at the same time, above me at the top of the bank, the thing, it stood swaying a little, looking down at me. I moved slowly, slowly, inched my way toward the gun. And as I drew closer, I kept my eyes looking up. But it didn't move, only stared down at me. And I thought I saw its little eyes glittering. And I thought, if the gun's frozen now, if it's frozen, it doesn't fire. And I was nearer to it, near enough to take off my glove. But that moment in which I'd have to bend to pick it up... That's when it would leap down at me, tear my throat out, tear and... I had the gun and I pulled the trigger. And it lay there, strange and terrifying, its blood staining the snow. And it looked at me. Until the sound died away. It was dead. But the eyes kept on staring. It must have been the shots that loosened the snow and ice on the ridge above. I heard the sound and I ran. Ran! me and swept on down toward the valley, the thunder of it dying in the distance. And when I went back, there was nothing there. It was buried 
somewhere under tons of snow. I made my way back to the wrong book village. I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know about the abominable snowmen. Escape has brought you The Abominable Snowman, written and directed by Anthony Ellis, starring William Conrad as Lane. Featured in the cast were Anthony Barrett, High Everback, Jack Crucian, and Edgar Barrier. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week... passenger aboard a submarine making its last peaceful voyage across the sea. While unknown to you, the captain has a plan which, if it succeeds, will mean for you and the entire crew a fate from which there can be no escape. So listen next week when Escape will bring you Marion Mosner... And Francis Rosenwald's exciting story, The Log. You're headed in the right direction. The station is right, the network is right, too. Check all timepieces and then check your local radio schedule. Let's have no slip-ups. Everybody wants to hear the Jack Benny Show right from the beginning when it returns to CBS Radio tonight. This is Roy Rowan speaking. is the CBS Radio Network. was The Abominable Snowman from Escape here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And that was kind of a request, more of a suggestion of uh, celebrating uh, Mr. Ellis's 100th birthday. Yep. And it came from a mysterious listener, Mark, uh, who suggested this to us. And I thought it was a fantastic idea. Yeah. So thank you, Mark. Thank um, you. And it was hard to choose because we've... Um, 
discussed a lot of Mr. Ellis's work on Escape. Right. But this, and I'm very curious to hear what you think of this, but this was always a back pocket episode of mine for mm-hmm. a time when we'd gone on a streak of episodes that Eric just hated. Because in my <laughs> mind, this is my idea of the sort of classic man against beast adventure, really detailed but straightforward story that Eric would like. So I'm very curious if that <laughs> is indeed true. I'm not going to give you any tell <laughs> yet, I, I because I want to say this first. This is very important. Okay. Everybody has their words that they oh. struggle with. <laughs> I can't say the word abominable. You just did. I, if you listen, if you go back to the four times in this podcast, I've said it already. I say it really fast because I struggle with it. Yeah. Abominable. abominable. Uh, listeners, he's just sweating. Just He's so stressed I out right now. just sweated to the abominable. I hate that word. The abominable snowman. It. Abominable. <laughs> Abominable. Am I doing it right? Abominable. Abominable. You at home. Try saying it. Abominable. <laughs> Abominable. Follow the bouncing ball. How about you say metacogmy? No. We are Yeti. The, let's at say this, Yeti. At this point, Tim, it's yes. exactly right. It will be referred to as the Yeti for the rest of this podcast, <laughs> so I do not have to worry about the abominable. abominable. Okay. That being said, I'll let you off the hook. Everything you just said about me and what I like is absolutely true. Everything that I like is in this episode, <laughs> except for one tiny little issue that I had with it. Car chase. I'm sorry. No car chase. <laughs> I had a car chase in it. You're right. It's an adventure. I love it. It jumps right into the story. We're going to go hunt this thing. It takes place in a, in a world that is a mystery to us at this point in history. It was romantic to be in the Himalayas. Like, we knew nothing about it. I've always said things that take place in old-time radio in the Middle East, when that seemed like such a faraway... Do they have gravity there? Right. (laughs) Magic. It was all magic, and Mm -hmm. snakes came out of baskets. And I really liked that, the the ignorance of it that made it much more uh, interesting. It's like science fiction. Yeah. All we had was National Geographics to tell us what was going on (laughs) in the world. And so this had all of the elements that of has William Conrad... and the Foley was great. Yeah, we'll the talk about the Foley. Foley I think the Foley is phenomenal. It is mm-hmm. just one of the best ever. So here is the issue. There is a moment where the llama, well, he says, Conrad says, but I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. Yeah. And it wasn't long before I found out why. So hang with me on this yeah. explanation. So to me, I'm like, ah, ha, 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 let's remember that line because at the very end, what happens is nothing. He kills him, and it gets swept away, and it's because of that line. I thought the llama was going to be either A, some kind of shape-shifting you, werewolf. You rip off the Yeti's mask, yeah. and it was going to be the llama. Or, oh, he, or he, becomes, <laughs> he becomes him, or he's in charge of him, and he's behind him, and he directs him. Uh, but the smile was about the very next line. It wasn't a long game. The smile he had was because he knew the porters would not agree to go. He gave him permission right. thinking he would find no one who would take it. Well, good for you for catching that. <laughs> I didn't. I went, aha. Uh, but I will just say that it's so straightforward of a story that that's the only small disappointment I had with it is that in this, and this, and this, and this, and we killed him. It's not a really huge 
interesting ending for me. But up until that point, I was having the best time of my life. And it wasn't enough for me to go, oh, that was stupid. I just went, oh, well, it was still great. But I just was expecting some kind of reveal, some kind of twist, some kind of thing. Does that, that make ending, sense? Oh, yeah. I had the same emotional reaction to that, but I also caught that, oh, he means the porters. But it, right. the setup of, I'm going to speak to the llama and get permission, and he will grant permission, mm-hmm. but then it seems like he's got a secret about it, seems like it should mean more than just, you'll never get anybody that could work for you. Right. I the wanted ending. some kind of explanation of the Yeti, or some kind of That was the thing, is the thing. ending seemed to almost switch genres from action adventure to and I may be projecting but sort of cosmic horror of when he shoots the thing and it has these making these weird noises and gurgles and mm-hmm. it's no longer about live or die kill or be killed it's what is that strange thing I'm now suddenly interacting with yeah. there is that and that death scene is pretty fantastic the it is cry when the yeti is shot mm-hmm. and his death gurgles are yeah. <laughs> pretty yeah, it's just uh, so weird what I love about this is that it takes the abominable snowman and makes it real. There's never a question of is it real or isn't it in this mm-hmm. story, which I think is fascinating because most of these stories would be about, oh, it doesn't exist. There's no skepticism. He and his group are going to capture it. Mm-hmm. The llamas know it exists. Mm-hmm. The Sherpas know it exists. Mm-hmm. It takes this very um, well-researched mm-hmm. and naturalistic approach to the story that I found really refreshing. Yeah, it's somewhat frustrating, the ending for me also, in the sense that I feel like, oh, poor William Conrad now is a snuffleupagus. You know, like, no one's going to believe me. <laughs> well, let me back this up and go. One of the other things I really liked about this, and I think, be patient, but I think it connects to the end. And that is, at least by old time radio standards, what stands out to me is the portrayal of the natives and particularly in the song, the Sherpa guide. And that it's clearly it's played by a white guy, but on the most surface level, the accent is remarkably understated and Mm -hmm. verging on respectful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he is not, and never portrayed as superstitious, which is the trope of this time. Uh, The opposite. In fact, he repeatedly states, I'm not afraid. He has knowledge and experience that is crucial to the expedition. He is not an impediment uh, to the white man's goal. The llama is also portrayed with this strength and dignity capped off with that knowing smile. Uh, He's actually playing them. Mm -hmm. So to me, that end sort of echoed the treatment of the Sherpas and the natives of this area. Like, wow, I didn't listen. I have uncovered this horrible <laughs> thing. There was a balance here. Even the um, porters who refused to go, it wasn't out of superstition. They, yeah, they don't want to cause trouble. Yeah. Okay. We have this peace with them. There's a balance here, and right. we don't want to screw it up. It's not superstition. It's caution based on experience and knowledge. And so, to me, that ending connected to that. And maybe to your Lovecraftian horror, I have uncovered this thing. I have yeah. brought this out of the darkness where these people knew how to handle it. In that same vein, even before uh, they get to the end, William Conrad's character, as soon as he starts to see that his Sherpa is in danger, like, this is a big deal. If I lose my Sherpa, I'm in a big mess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love all of that that you just said. That was fantastic. Nice job. <laughs> Both of you. It does have those elements to it that I didn't really take into account until listening to you, but it does have an approach that is not 
stereotypical in both ways <laughs> of the people or of the genre. And the mm-hmm. other thing that you didn't mention that I also love, put anything in snow and blizzards and I'm really happy. <laughs> I love like I've said many times on this podcast, I'll listen to Sergeant Preston of the Yukon <laughs> just because it's outside in the winter. Oh, what if Sergeant Preston found the abominable snowman? That would be an episode. I bet there is one. How much you want to bet there is one? Nothing. I just don't want to say abominable. <laughs> and it, it does what Escape does so well, which is create this environment so vividly that is so threatening mm-hmm. that every step of getting from this point of the plot to the next point of the plot is fraught. Yes. Since we are celebrating uh, Mr. Ellis here, uh, one of the things he excels at is putting characters in these escape life and death situation, but always humanizes them enough that the listener can relate despite the extreme or fantastic mm-hmm. nature of their predicaments. I think a great example of this is, and it's probably the best scene in this play, but uh, the scene after uh, Paul, the narrator, returns to the camp and tells Frank in the song what happened to Alan Mm -hmm. when he falls into that crevice. And he says, and we were quiet for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Frank very quietly asks, you know, are we going back tomorrow? And then very cautiously asks, any chance Alan got out? Maybe if we went back there and asked all those questions. Yeah. you would, and Paul re- reacts defensively and doesn't want to give up because they're that close. And the song is brought to his senses finally and says this is an omen, and he's it's the closest to superstitious depiction of him that this script gets, but he's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is an omen of bad things to come because you've lost a member of the group. But what's interesting about this scene is that each of those responses represent a different but very human and relatable response to the death of Alan. Mm -hmm. It stands out from other types of adventure fiction in that way. Like these are all very human characters. And again, they include the native in that very human (laughs) characterization, which is very different. It reminds me a little, the subversion of those tropes of um, the dark wall, which we like Mm -hmm. so much that Kathleen Hyde as well in Escape. But it's just a great, small, but powerful scene. I also like that moment where he describes the idea that they're not sleeping very well because they're imagining Alan at the bottom of that crevice, still alive, and hoping that they might show up to help him. And we touched on this a few minutes ago. We really need to talk about the foley in yeah, the show. Mm-hmm. Little it's things. so textured. There's it's like so dogs barking when they're in the village and sheep. Well, early on when, when he's interviewing for the shirt position. Song, yeah. Yeah. And you hear the chair push back yes. and walking across and opening the door. And moving the map. Each of those sounds was just perfect and out of depth, each of those sounds. And they really communicate the distance and, and where the listener is mm-hmm. and, and where they've left. It's just, and it's narratively not necessary, but it really fills it out. Mm-hmm. Well, and just little things like eating soup. You know, <laughs> it, just, it was fantastic. Those details that get passed yeah. by a lot in radio shows just reminds me how important they are and how much they can add. And despite how it relies on narration, mm-hmm. there's this great moment where they communicate everything through Foley, and that is uh, when he loses the gun. Uh, yes. Right before the uh, abominable snowman shows up, he he's, he's worried. <laughs> he, he's worried that it's frozen and it won't work, and he gets it, and then it's just click, 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 bang. bang. And he, that is 
awesome. Mm-hmm. And they just let the Foley work there. They don't say, I pull the trigger six times. Yeah. yeah. And it's way more powerful with all those mm-hmm. clicks. Yeah, just him falling down the crevice. It wasn't over the top. It sounded like a guy falling 30 feet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or 20 feet. Because he, he says it wasn't that far. And it was just occasional uh, grunts and snow moving. And then when Paul describes his cry as surprised and then angry, mm-hmm. there was something awful about that. That moment of, I can't believe this is happening <laughs> to me. It's awful. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about the script is it just doesn't ignore the real human loss of this expedition. And in that way, it's really well researched from a Everest expedition point of view because the Ron Book Monastery, the village, that's mm-hmm. a real place. Ooh. It's really oh. where most of the expeditions that went up Mount Everest camped. Metacogni, that is where the original abominable snowman term came from, from a 1921 wow. expedition. It translates roughly into man bear snowman which seems like one of the later lame He-Man action figures that came out with <laughs> Along with, like, Stinkor and Moss Man. <laughs> right. <laughs> Man Bear Snowman. But, um, <laughs> and I guess it was some sort of mistranslation that went from filthy to abominable from, like, the newspapers trying wow. to make it grander. They became abominable snowman. So they picked the hardest word in the yeah. world to say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's not just dirty snowman. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're like, no. Oh, that's a shower snowman. Yeah, don't Google dirty snowman. <laughs> you don't want to see where that carrot is. And they actually use the um, Tibetan word for Everest, what? Shamaluma, or uh, probably pronouncing it wrong. But Shamalan? Uh, yeah, Shamaluma or something like that. It's goddess mother of the world, which the Lama actually uh-huh. says, and that is the translation. So clearly I'm saying Ellis spent a lot of time researching right. this. So did you. Yes. There's <laughs> like a Three Dog Night song, right? From the halls of Shamalama. Ding right. dong. Ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> we could just keep talking about it, but, you know, every moment was great. My caveat about the ending is really nominal. I was waiting for some kind of twisty thing, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of reveal, and it turns out to be just man versus nature. Yep. And that's fine. I think my disappointment was self-imposed, yep. <laughs> waiting for something. I think that's legit. Maybe, you know, if when he saw him on the ridge, the, the Yeti, you know, if the Yeti was yeah. like, hey, I could really use a jacket. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe if he brought an elf dentist, right? everything would have ended up Bubbles bows. Um... Hey, as long as we're picking nits here, the sort of setup it seemed of so long as you don't kill any other living thing. Right. That never came up. Like, okay, we won't. And we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. They could have had their moment where they had to. Yeah, we took a shot and hit the wrong thing. That is nitpicky, but you're right. Why bring it up if it's not going to come into play? I would assume it's accurate for the culture and historical Mm -hmm. and that. Yes. But there is that danger whenever you're being authentic is that it feels inauthentic in a fictional setting. Yeah. I had a creative writing teacher who always said, real life is no defense for bad fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm calling this bad, but you're right. It does seem like a Chekhov's. Yeah, exactly. Don't use Chekhov's gun. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, let's vote. I'll start Ellis is a phenomenal writer. We mentioned in and the director. Opening. I want to emphasize yeah. he directed this yeah. 
Right. So I assume some of that textured foley yep. and uh, the whole production value is down to him. From I saw myself running, study in wax, as we mentioned in the opening, and many other things, he's just really good. And this is no exception. I consider I saw myself running and a study in wax to be classics. And I'm going to tell you that this is, for me, a classic. This is riveting and really fun, scary, suspenseful adventure. And again, the ending... I think I set myself up for something that I wanted to happen. Uh, I'll call it a classic. The only hesitation is it's so quintessentially escape. I mean, it's a great example of escape, but it's also the essence of what, you know, if you listen to an escape, this is kind of what you want to hear. Right. That it almost becomes like not as special, but it's a classic because it's fantastic and it's so good. And it is just every note of it. What made escape such a great series? Yeah. Tim brings up that, and I think we've talked about before that nerd tendency to love a thing because of what it is, but really love the versions of that thing that subvert the thing. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the favorites from most series are more of an outlier, but you're right. This is a baseline escape, but I think the joy here is in the details and the description and the Foley and the fact that Ellis always includes emotional stakes with his life and death escapes. And that elevates it for me. This is a classic for sure for me, and I think a really fantastic example of Ellis's strengths as both a writer and director. And if the llama had become the Yeti, it would have been brilliant. <laughs> Wait, you're the Yeti? And I would have gotten away with it too. <laughs> if it weren't for that meddling William Conrad. Old man llama. Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com, home of this podcast. Not only are there other episodes there, but there's also links to our social media. You can comment on episodes, vote, let us know what you think about these episodes. Uh, You can also get a hold of us, send us a message. What episodes would you like us to listen to? What centennials would you like us to celebrate? Come on, talk to us. (laughs) You can also go to patreon.com slash the morals. If you don't want to talk to us, give us money. (laughs) Because money talks. <laughs> you can also go to iTunes and write a review. I feel bad asking for reviews because I want to take a moment to say we have a lot of really nice reviews. So if awesome. you've already written a review, I don't think we say it enough. Thank you so much. There's yeah. some really kind, generous, awesome th- reviews on iTunes. So thank you. Um, but if you want to write some more, we won't, <laughs> <laughs> won't have any problem with that either. And one of these days, Joshua is going to show me how to click on something to find those reviews. <laughs> Uh, also, if you would like to see the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society perform old-time radio golden age recreations of radio and original in the style of golden age of radio scripts, uh, we perform live at Park Square Theater uh, on a regular basis, and uh, this is the year 2020. Uh, so go check us out. That's in St. Paul, Minnesota. What's coming up next? Up next is me. We're going to be returning to Dark Fantasy to listen to the episode, The Cup of Gold. I'm so excited. Until then. Look out! Lay there. Strange and terrifying. It's blood staining the snow. And it looked at me. It looked at me. Until the sound died away. I tell you, you're looking at a mighty humble bumble.